Listen now to the word of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So reads the word of God and a glorious text of scripture it is. We come this morning to the close of Paul's instruction to this church in Rome before he expresses some personal thoughts in the remainder of chapter 15 here. And even though he's never met these folks, some personal greetings to and from a a lengthy list of friends in chapter 16. Emphasizing that they're all one body in Christ, even though he's never met them. That will come to bear more as we look through those Last, this last chapter and a half together. But this morning concludes the instruction portion of his letter. Some see this brief passage, these few verses, as the summary and, and the climactic expression of the whole letter. And there are a number of themes from this letter as a whole that reappear here in a, in a, in a finalized sort of way. But at the very least, we can see that these seven verses as the conclusion to Paul's instruction to the weak and the strong that began back in chapter 14. Or we might say, as we've unpacked that and seen how this works, to the Jews and the Gentiles. It has appeared as though the Jews were the weaker brothers in these passages. Wrestling with how the requirements of the Old Testament are brought over into a New Testament relationship with Christ. And that the Gentiles were the stronger brother. Strange turnabout as that is. Precisely because this is all new to them. And they're experiencing the fullness of the freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin and hope of eternal life. Also, his whole applicational section from chapter 12 on is really brought to a conclusion here. As one commentator wrote, a summary of what it means to give oneself to others in love. That's what we see in verses 7 to 13, a summary 
of what it means to give oneself to others in love. But there are also some additional insights that I believe we can find here that are beyond just the concluding word on the instruction portion of Paul's letter. I think there are some practical insights we can gain, matters of practical importance. So really, let's just get started in this text and let's hear it well this morning and appreciate what it is that Paul is saying here. We're going to follow a three-step outline. We'll take it in three parts. You can see those listed there in your bulletin, and so that's what we'll follow. Um, the principle, verse 7, the proof, all those Old Testament quotes in verses 8 through 12, and then the payoff, verse 13. So that'll be our quippy little outline this morning. Right? The principle, once again, just like we saw last week, the word of instruction that's given in this paragraph comes in the opening verse. If you want to know what you should do in response to this, and we'll come back to it at the end, you see it right there in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's the charge. There's what we do. Therefore, clearly opens this closing paragraph. And the change, or I'm sorry, the charge that it introduces, in the words of Doug Moo, gathers up the threads of Paul's entire exhortation to the strong and the weak. It's tying that off, but as we said, it's doing even more. So, bottom line, this is what we should do according to the climactic paragraph of this glorious letter. This is what we should do. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It sounds kind of modest, doesn't it? <laughs> At the end of this letter that has wowed us in so many ways, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It does sound small. But I think we'll see that there's a bit more to it than that. That's what makes us appreciate this letter to Rome that Paul has written. Let's look at it a little more deeply. This charge was given to the strong regarding the weak to kick off this section back in chapter 14, verse 1, to welcome one another. Now it's given equally to all in the body, strong and weak alike. We've already talked a good deal about what it actually means to welcome one another. The major translations that we can look at at different points, all of them use either welcome or accept or receive. Each one of those gives a sense of what this welcome one another is telling us to do. And as you put them together, it's, you can appreciate it. You accept one another. You, you receive one another into close fellowship. And you do so with a... With a hospitable spirit, a, a welcome. This isn't just tolerate one another. This is treat one another as family. Welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So having talked quite a bit about that, we can see here that Paul raises the bar notably on what we need to do as we welcome one another raises it with a couple of breathtaking descriptors here that as we just read the verse can kind of float past us but 
As we look more closely at them, we can see they're pretty intense. His two descriptors of the way we should welcome one another is, as Christ has welcomed you, number one, and for the glory of God, number two. Let's look at those in sequence. The key word in this first descriptor, as Christ has welcomed you, strangely, is that little word, as. It's, it's a word that, it's a, it's a special one that can have a couple of different uses. It can be taken as more casual. Just as Christ has welcomed you, welcome one another. If that's the case, then all Paul is telling us to do here is treat one another as members of God's family. Be respectful and kind toward one another. Or this word can have a more comparative sense to it. And that's actually the more common use for this word, as. If it's the comparative sense, then what Paul is saying here is to accept one another just as Christ has accepted you, in the same way as Christ has accepted you. And the way that, and what Christ did to accept you, be willing to go that far with one another. So just as Christ has accepted us, despite our hostility toward him, despite our rebellion against him, despite our weakness and sin, we accept one another. We receive one another. We welcome one another. This is not meaning that we tolerate sin. We address sin lovingly and gently as needed, just as we saw in the first two verses last Sunday and its partner passage, Galatians 6. But we don't divide over that sin in response to that sin unless and until the unified church acts together in discipline against it. Otherwise, we endure and we labor for one another's good, just as we've talked about, welcoming one another in that way. Given the context, then, I believe Paul is calling us to this comparative sense when we say, as Christ has welcomed you. So even if it costs us something, even if it brings us reproach, as we saw back in verse 3, accept one another. That's what Christ has done with us. He's accepted all of us who've trusted in him, strong and weak alike, Gentile and Jew alike, all of us sinners. He's welcomed us. And so what Paul is saying here at this conclusion is that we follow his lead in that. And I would say that's a high bar. Imitating Jesus in our love for one another and in our devotion to one another's good. This is much like what we hear from husbands to wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, earlier in that chapter of Ephesians 5, that instruction is given to the church as a whole, and Paul's doing it again here in Romans 15. Even so, this isn't something we just do. As we have seen multiple times throughout this study, and as we'll see again today before it concludes, we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's work in us. This is part of what the gospel accomplishes is a welcoming of one another in imitation of Jesus' welcome of us. The second bar-raising descriptor here is for the glory of God. And that's a familiar point of reference in this letter. It's come up a number of times. If you recall, the glory of God is what we fall short of due to our sin back in chapter 3, remember? 
The glory of God is something that we exchange for idols of our own making when we pursue our own way in this world and sort of self-style our own religion, what we're forfeiting in that effort is the glory of God, according to Romans 1. Even so, his glory will surely be reproduced in us, chapter 8. And eventually in this study, we actually discover that God is prepared beforehand for that to happen. Chapter 9, verse 23, the, the, the glory of God plays a pretty prominent role here in Romans. And we begin showing it in this life in large measure, showing the glory of God as we welcome one another in him as Christ has welcomed us. That's what Paul is saying, for the glory of God. Be devoted to one another as Christ was devoted to you, recognizing that that very devotion is what puts the glory of God on display among us. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said similar things to his disciples, right? It's by your love for one another that the world will know that you're my disciples. They'll, they'll know you're my followers. They'll know you're reconciled to God by the love that you have for one another. So that's the charge here. At the climactic close of this hallowed letter, we begin showing this welcome to one, to one another and we're showing the glory of God. We're showing that we're one body in Christ with no dividing wall of separation between us. That's the charge at the climactic close of this letter. The loving unity in the church it's one of, if not the clearest manifestations of the glory of God in this fallen world. And as I said, we could see this coming, especially in the upper room discourses. Jesus gave his instruction to his disciples, a new command, I give you that you love one another. And then as he prayed for them, those last seven verses of John 17, as he's praying for those who will believe on the basis of the testimony of his disciples, he's praying for love and for unity that will convince the world that our faith is authentic. It's a high priority. Later, John wrote to his church, it's a wonderful verse, 1 John 4, 12, saying that it's these very qualities, our love for one another, that makes the invisible God visible in this world. I love the way that thought comes together. As we love one another, we make an invisible God visible to people who are watching. Praise God for that. But all of this got started long before any of these things. And the implications of it reached further than we'd imagined, these things that we've understood. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Starting to see, wow, there's more to that than I expected. But it also got started much earlier. 4, verse 8, look at that. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and 
in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's a dense statement. Usually we think of Christ becoming a servant as referring to his incarnation when he humbled himself and took on flesh to die for the sins of all who believe. Philippians 2 describes that with such beauty and clarity. But that's not the whole picture here in Romans 15. Paul's not just talking about Jesus becoming a servant. He's not just talking about his incarnation generally and what he has done to provide for the sins of the world, but here with a specific couple of points of reference. A servant to the circumcised. He's talking about Jesus becoming a servant to the circumcised, a very specific manifestation of his servanthood. To the Jews for the purpose of showing God's truthfulness. So we could say in a simple statement, Jesus took on flesh to prove that God keeps his word. That's a good beginning point. Jesus took on flesh to fulfill his divine commission to accomplish salvation in fulfillment of the promises of God. But Paul tells us here that Jesus had two additional purposes in mind beyond proving God's truthfulness. Two intentional outcomes that he aimed to achieve as he welcomed us in the way that he did. As he became a servant to the Jews to show the truthfulness of God, he also did two additional things as a result of that. He did all of this first, verse 8, in order to confirm that the promises given to the patriarchs, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Jesus took on flesh in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he would provide salvation for all the nations through their earthly line. He's not just proving that God's keeping his word. He's proving that God is keeping his specific word, his specific promise to the patriarchs. Paul is affirming here once again that the word of God has not failed. That's what he was talking about in chapters 9 through 11. And now he comes back to that in this concluding paragraph. He's showing God's truthfulness in order to confirm that the promises given to the patriarchs are reliable and true promises. The saving work that God provided in Christ is bearing the fruit it's bearing there in Rome by the power of the Spirit to confirm that he's kept his covenant promises. God has kept his covenant promises to the nth degree and none of them has failed. There's the first one. Second, some additional proof. The Gentiles were included from the very beginning in God's promises to the patriarchs. That's why Jesus has welcomed the Gentiles who trusted in him. He did it, and here's his second purpose statement, in order that the Gentiles, in fulfillment of those very promises made to the patriarchs of Israel, might glorify God for his mercy. So he's doing it to prove God's truthfulness 
He's doing it in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And he's doing it in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy in fulfillment of those very promises. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his undeserved kindness toward them from the very inception of his saving plan in this world. Believing Gentiles, as we learned back in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, believing Gentiles are children of Abraham by faith. Going all the way back to chapter 2, Paul has made this point all along through his argument. Remember chapter 2, verse 28? No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul's underscoring that point as he's drawing this paragraph to a conclusion. The incarnation of Christ is in order to prove that God keeps his promises, specifically his promises to the patriarchs, and most particularly in this present discussion, the fact that the Gentiles are brought into saving relationship with God through the fulfillment of those promises to the patriarchs. So this listing of verses then in the, from the middle of 9 through 12 quoted from each section of the Old Testament, law, prophets, and writings, is underscoring that point. This is a grand salvation, historical affirmation that's going on here. And what our response is to it, what difference it makes for us that God has provided such a glorious salvation that unites Jew and Gentile in one new man for eternity. David first here from 2 Samuel 22, also recorded in Psalm 18, blessed God for his victory over his enemies and then said, using the language of the psalm and, the, and 2 Samuel, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. David's praise will spread beyond Israel to the nations according to the purpose and plan of God. That's the second part of verse 9. Moses then finished his instruction of Israel with a song that ends in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Translated a little bit differently in our ESV. We won't take time to unpack why that is, but this is a reliable word that Paul is sharing in Romans 15. The psalmist then wrote in Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Verse 11. And then verse 12. And again, Isaiah said from Isaiah 11, verse 10, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. All parts of Old Testament Scripture talking about this as the promise of salvation. Jew and Gentile together, now accomplished in Christ to the point where Paul is celebrating it and saying, welcome one another. Not just weak and strong. That's, that's too easy. Jew and Gentile. There, that gets it. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He's done everything necessary for that to happen. This is amazing. 
So Paul finishes his instruction here with yet another flourish of proof from the Old Testament that God has always intended his salvation promises to Israel to include the Gentiles, to include the nations. Always intended it to be so. And he's always intended that those who reject his covenant, those who reject his promised Messiah, will face his judgment even if they are born into the physical line of Abraham. You don't live according to the covenant. You don't receive the covenant blessings. You don't embrace what God is doing by faith. You don't experience the joy of reconciliation to God. Chapter 3, for we have already charged, if you remember, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Both are numbered among the all in 3.23 who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile alike. Jews and Gentiles together in one body that has always been God's purpose. His plan, fullness of time, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, including Jew and Gentile, as we learn in chapter 2, one new man with no dividing wall of hostility separating them. Verse 16, so making peace. This calling in this brief paragraph is exploding in our minds as we follow what Paul is saying and tie it in to his teaching about how salvation works. This is the welcome Paul is calling for here. The welcome that's facilitated by this saving work of God. A unified church is the fulfillment of the gospel. It's the fulfillment of God's salvation plan. Even of God's promises to the patriarchs. A unified church is the fulfillment of the gospel, of God's salvation plan, of God's promises to the patriarchs. Not the church replacing Israel as a recipient of God's promises, but God's promises to Israel fulfilled as the church. That is how it works. The church is just what God was promising to the patriarchs, to say it differently. And that is a massively important theological statement. The church is just what God was promising to the patriarchs. We can see that as his word describes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, it's describing our salvation, being born again of the Spirit and having the Spirit inhabit us and free us from sin. That's the new covenant for Israel. That is life in the church. As modern-day Jews want to return to God and live according to his covenant, then the only way they can do so is by trusting Christ as Savior, as their promised Messiah, and so being born again into the family of God, the, the one new man of the church, just as Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
That's how God planned it to work from the beginning. And while I'm tempted to continue on with that thought, just a a brief aside here for a moment, a practical application that I think we need to keep in mind in our present day, especially given the amount of attention that needs to be focused on the nation of Israel today. We need to understand a bit about this. We need to ask a key question in response to this. We need to ask, is it right to call the present day state of Israel God's people? How do we think about that? Is it right to say the land is theirs by divine promise right now, today, in these present circumstances? Is Israel, as it exists today, entitled to the land by divine right? Well, what does God's word say? God's word says that the covenant blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 28 make it pretty clear that Israel is entitled to the land only as they honor God's covenant with them. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. The Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself if, You keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. However, later in that same chapter, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So I think we should be careful about referring to Israel as God's people in the land right now, today, when as a nation they reject him and his word, along with all the blessings that he's poured out on them over the millennia. Blessings Paul listed in detail back in chapter 9. Now, this doesn't mean that Israel gets to be a punching bag for the nations. God speaks very firmly about the nations that don't treat Israel with respect. They're entitled to all the same human rights and privileges that all of the rest of us are. And there is, perhaps, something remarkable going on in the fact that in 1948, they're brought back into the land but had nothing to do with the fulfillment of God's purposes in pouring out salvation upon Israel because it's not there. It's not happening. It's still very much a remnant. We need to think carefully about that and understand that. We should surely be praying for Israel. And we should also be praying for Palestinians. A people from whom we know there will be some who are worshiping around the throne of God for all eternity. Revelation 5 and 7 make that clear. So we need to keep our theology straight. As we pray for Israel, we should pray standing on the truth of God's word. His word that tells us that his promises to them will never fail. 
But as they are fulfilled, they will be fulfilled in a reconciling of that people to himself as the people of God. Then entitled to the land for all eternity in the fulfillment of the promises that God made to the patriarchs. Remember back in chapter 9? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins, declares the Lord. There is a glorious day of hope. So my friends, pray. Pray for Israel. Pray that God will use this present crisis to reawaken them to their need for him. Just as he has promised that he will do. And when you pray for the Palestinian people, seek God to save some from this present generation. To know the joys of salvation. The joys of heaven. And fulfillment of Revelation 5 and 7. And pray, longing for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom. Where there will finally, finally be no more war. No more terrorists, no more bloodshed, no more firebombs. Indeed, Revelation 21, death shall be no more. That's a pretty big opponent to overthrow, isn't it? Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're looking for. That's the peace we long to see in Jerusalem. And throughout all the earth, Jesus is the only solution in the Middle East or anywhere else. His salvation is our only true hope. And that salvation is sure. It's as sure as the incarnation of Christ to prove the truthfulness of God and the salvation that he's accomplished as a result. Complete with the resurrection that proved his power over life and death. Salvation is our only true hope. And have you noticed, by the way, moving into verse 13, have you noticed how many times hope is mentioned in this half chapter? <laughs> Four times. Four times. Three of them in the last two verses of today's text. Hope is awakened in us by the Scriptures. Verse 5. It's fueled in us beyond measure by the coming of the root of Jesse, verse 12, Messiah, Jesus. Hope is the unique purview of God, verse 13, first appearance. It's the unique purview of God, meaning that God alone controls the future, so he alone can grant actual hope. Any other hope is simply a wish for the best. But when God is involved, hope can be a waiting for an eternal future. A sure future. A solid future. And God does grant his people hope 
by the power of his spirit. Verse 13, second appearance. Hope is our inheritance in Jesus. Hope is our inheritance in Jesus right here and right now. It's our present confidence in a certain future that just hasn't yet been fully and finally delivered. But we live in hope of it. Our hope is strengthened by God and His Spirit and His Word, according to this text. How? God works in us by His Spirit to produce His fruit in our hearts. Do you recognize it there in that text? The fruit of the Spirit? Joy and peace? God works in us by His Spirit to produce His fruit in our hearts. Fruit that fills us to overflowing with an abundance of hope. I would say as we experience joy and peace, we experience some of the deepest affirmation that the promises of God are true and reliable. And that means that the eventual outcome of those promises is certain. We hope in it, and that hope will not be disappointed. So God works in us by His Spirit to produce His fruits in our hearts, fruits that fill us to overflowing with an abundance of hope that magnifies God's glory through us by enabling us to live here and now as though we're already present in the place for which we hope. That's why Paul writes this closing prayer wish here, as it's called by a number of commentators, closing prayer wish in verse 13. He's prayerfully wishing for the Roman church that the fruit of God's Spirit would so characterize their hearts and so capture their affections that hope for the fulfillment of his salvation will just be spilling out of them all the time. That's the picture Paul is painting here. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Ooh, if this were a psalm, there'd be a selah there, wouldn't there? That's got to sink in because this is at the end of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You might live for the day. You might welcome one another. Friends, this is what the gospel accomplishes. What, what, what Jesus has provided for us, this is it. It's what he's modeled for us. It's what he's prayed for us to experience. We ask God to grant us the full experience of the salvation Jesus died to provide. 
and to experience it this side of heaven. That's what we pray as a church. And Paul's praying for that right here for the Romans and for every church since then. That they would just know the fullness of this salvation that God has provided. That the joy and the peace that it fills you with would just generate a fountain of hope which is just living in light of the day, living as though the day had already arrived. The only place where that's going to happen is inside the church. This world isn't in step with any of this. But by the grace of God, this can characterize us. This is the payout of the gospel here and now. The gospel that Paul has been explaining from the beginning of this letter. A church unified in love and worship and abounding in hope to the glory of God. A church that just displays the power of the gospel in their relationship with one another that shows their relationship with God. We finished last week with a single prayer. I finished with the same one today. Heavenly Father, make us such a church. You pray that with me? Actually, you could right now. This is a responsive crowd, Charles. You could pray that with me right now. Can you say that with me? Heavenly Father, make us such a church. Can I encourage you to take that request with you? And join me now as we pray. And even as I pray, the musicians and the communion servers can please come to the front. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, we talk about this passage uh, capturing our hearts and igniting our affections. And Lord, we pray that it would do just that, a text that can sound so simple as we read it and yet has such profound depth when we just linger with it a bit and give it a chance to speak. Oh, Father, do that work in us. We don't want to be playing at church, playing at our relationship with you, playing at our relationships with one another. Once you have saved us by the shed blood of Christ, it only makes sense to leave us in this world if we are messengers for this gospel. And it's a painful process. We can cower in fear and we can recoil from the pushback that comes. And Father, as we look around the world, we can see how much of the church, how many of our brothers and sisters feel that deeply, that opposition. And they can say, we feel a small taste of that, but surely it can get worse. All of this works together, Father, to cause us to back off and just sort of hold Christianity with one hand. But I pray, Lord God, that by your grace and through the work of your Spirit, through this very text of Scripture, 
you might enable us not to grasp it with one hand, but to embrace it with both arms. And to walk together as the body of Christ, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God in testimony to the great and glorious saving work our Lord has done through his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and now his promised return in which we hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.